0: Hello and welcome back. It's been Yaman Rose Rosen, myself, Gedalia Guttendijk with Mishpacha's Homefront, a wide-angle view of Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Hello, Yaman, what's on your mind? Hello, Gedalia. The angle just got a lot wider
1: after a report from NBC News that circulated last night that Secretary of State Blinken has been meeting or did meet on his last visit to Israel with Benny Gantz and with Yair Lapid with the idea of circumventing Benjamin Netanyahu and uh, the duly elected government of Israel. The idea being that uh, Netanyahu doesn't seem keen on Blinken's idea to uh, promote a Palestinian state uh, in return for an end of the war, return of the hostages, and uh, more relations with the Arab countries, which is something that some of the Arab countries discussed in Davos this week, uh, mainly uh, from Qatar. In Saudi Arabia, since Netanyahu doesn't like uh, that idea because he doesn't believe a Palestinian state is viable. And he also believes uh, and knows, like most people, how harmful it would be for our security. So he rejected it. So Blinken says, okay, so if you didn't like it, I'll uh, talk to other people who might end up taking over for you uh, if there's another election. The idea being that, as we heard in the report, that Netanyahu won't be around forever. Uh, Which I think is rather curious considering the man that Secretary of State Blinken for is trailing very badly in the polls and uh, he might not be around in another year either. So I'm surprised. Uh, I'm surprised because part of the reason this whole thing happened is because I believe the U.S. undermined Israel during the course of this past year politically when they saw that there was turmoil over judicial reform. U.S. officials, including Tom Neides and Blinken and others, undermined Israel, and they came out in support support of the anti-reformists, and they're doing the same thing again. So history is repeating itself in a very short period of time, and it's a big concern because Israel can't afford the obsession that America has for a two-state solution. You have to come up with something else already. This is 50, 60 years of talk about a two-state solution. The Palestinian Authority doesn't want it. Israel doesn't need it. And think creatively to try to solve this conflict in another way.
0: I'd like to say first a couple of things on that. It is indeed worrying. And I think it's has to be said, number one, that when you say there has to be something else, you have to think creatively. I think Israel and those who, you can't eternally be naysayers. We may be with the Trump administration this time next year, basically. And when you look back at the deal of the century, the Abram Court involved components that were very much like the Oslo process, et cetera. And certainly, if we have another four years of the Democrats, it's just going to be a nightmare running battle with them to hold this off. So the, those who say we can't have that have to propose something else simply because the dynamics, we can't afford daylight with the Americans and they retain this obsession with it. And the idea could just manage the conflict. I'm not so sure that holds water. That's point one bit. The second thing is that what i think this mbc piece may have done and if this gains traction the idea that america is kind of like siding with the opposition in a very open way politically this means here in israel you may have done the impossible which is to hand bibi a real post-war election manifesto in which to run remember this man is horrifically wounded in the, in the political sense but any rights presiding over such a disaster in my opinion if it was an old culture of taking responsibility for example that like you have in britain then he would resign and go home. But there isn't that culture over here. We've seen that of Miron, we've seen that of multiple times. There isn't that culture. And it's not at all clear that Bibi is more responsible that than all of his opponents as well, because they all, from, I've said that repeatedly, to a man, they presided over this concept here, this horrible failed thinking about Gaza. But he may have done, and that's why I say, Blinken may have handed Bibi a real claim to tell voters that I need to stay in office despite the October the 7th failures because I am the only one who can stand up Biden and prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state, which is going to worsen the pre-October the 7th problems. So to, to me, this intervention is very, very significant because of the real ammunition now hands the old order, the, the, the guard under Netanyahu. That's what this does to me. So what you're saying is that uh, this has potential to backfire on Blinken in
1: the US, and uh, I would agree with that. I would take it a little bit further. I would say that it applies not only to uh, Netanyahu if he's able to survive politically and lead the next election, but it would also apply to anyone else from the Likud for that matter, whether it's Nir Barkat or uh, Yuli Edelstein or uh, any of the uh, top names right now in the party who are potential uh, leaders of Likud, should the Likud hold new primaries. They'll all be able to say the same thing, that we're the only party that can prevent this uh, wave of sentiment favoring the creation of a Palestinian state. I mentioned earlier, we saw in Davos that the prime minister of Qatar talked about this. And again, the Arabs are very charming. He and also the foreign minister of Saudi Arabia took off their kaffiyas
0: and they wore regular business suits. Correct. They'll do that when they go onto Western territory and they look very natural in them. Very well tailored when you have $10,000 to throw out a suit. Yes.
1: And a uh, nice cloth hairdos also. So they look very sharp and they almost look Western. And they're saying the same thing. They're dangling in front of the Israeli eyes that uh, will recognize you if you indeed agree to our terms. And, uh, you know, Israel, again, they can't afford to do it. But the second point that you made about Israel having to come up with its own plan for the day after, they have to an extent, but uh, nobody wants to listen. Netanyahu has talked about that only Israel can take security control of Gaza and there has to be a buffer zone both inside Gaza and uh, surrounding Gaza so that the Jews who used to live there can go back. There has also been talk about Israel taking control of the Philadelphia Strip, which is the border on the south of Gaza between Gaza and Egypt to prevent uh, future smuggling. And uh, that's been talked about, but again, nobody uh, seems to like that because again, it involves uh, Israeli boots on the ground uh, in and around in near Gaza. And the third thing is Israel has to stop being so politically correct and stop being so nice and at least open up the discussion about resettling the people who live in Gaza elsewhere, whether it's elsewhere in the Middle East or elsewhere in the world. Again, I understand that we can't go out uh, and advocate a forced uh, resettlement, but... You have to make it very clear that there's no returning to Gaza very easily. And again, I know in Davos, Qatar and Saudi Arabia and Blinken came back and said that there's a bunch of Arab states that if Israel will only agree to the two-state solution and only agree to stop the war and only agree to withdraw uh, their troops from Gaza, that they'll come in and rebuild it. I don't believe it. The, The history of Arab nations making promises and commitments to the Palestinians, it's a really poor track record. And and to think for one minute that these countries are going to come up with the billions and billions of dollars that are necessary to rebuild Gaza for what? What are they going to get out of it? I don't think it's a realistic plan. And Israel, they have to support alternative solutions, even if they're unpopular and even if they don't sound good. And you can make it sound like this is for the best of the Palestinian people. Take a look at how many Palestinians live all over the world in relative peace and prosperity. I know there's a lot of problems in Europe with Certain segments of the Palestinian population, but you have Arabs living in England, in France, in Germany, in the United States, in South Africa, all over the world. So Latin America, heavily contingent to them. Exactly. Even uh, Paraguay, for decades, has had a very large Palestinian population. Again, we can throw them out. I understand that. But there's nothing wrong with suggesting that this is an equitable
0: solution for those who are interested. You know, but now and I think this has come about because this situation in which Israel's is playing defensive in so many arenas looking the hair you can at what's happening in davos there's the pressure of the two-state solution this is all happening because of israeli military weakness and failure and it's hard to say that but i think it has to be said that it detracts nothing from the bravery of the rank and file who've gone out there and given three months and in some cases given their life given their limbs to save Israel. that we have to look at the hard facts uh, as they are and be the moment if you were to ask people, you know, observers, even basically the man in the street, who has won? If the conflict ends here, who has won? I think it's hands down some has won. Remember, this is a guerrilla terrorist organization, a terrorist statelet that has taken their cause from the margins of world interest, put it squarely in the focus of world politics, has bloodied a regional and global military power, and has at this stage got away with it. Meaning... Shelly Yafimovich, who was the Labour Party leader a few years ago, and obviously left winger, but she wrote some this morning, something I agree. She says, look, if it looks like a duck, if it waddles like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, it is a duck. And in other words, Israel is on the quiet, pulling out from Gaza and going for a ceasefire. So there's all this talk of refreshing troops, et cetera, et cetera. But, but you know, and I think we civilians on the home front have won a very clear, a way to measure the progress of the battle, which is casualties. We know that for weeks and weeks, when we're getting reports of three, four, five casualties a day, deaths, that is not happening anymore there occasionally. Well, that is because we know for a fact, and we can hear in Gaza, we're not so far from Gaza, the air activity over the last week is down to almost nothing. And so is the bombing. Shabbos was heavy, since then not. And we can actually see this. It's so near us, we can actually measure the progress of what's going on over here. And her point was what is happening? We are giving them what they want. as they back to ceasefire without getting back the hostages? Now, her point was hostages. My point is overall that this is going to play very bad in the Middle East. Israel looks weak. Yes, we gave them a bloody nose, Hamas. And yes, we knocked down half of Gaza. But that can be rebuilt inside two years. And they're masters at rebuilding this place quickly. And the only way to reset the dial to October the 6th is to come out with a convincing military victory. When it's a military victory, but look, look, look at that, not just a picture of victory, you actually need the death, either dead or paraded in chains, and then executed like Eichmann in Yerushalayim. That's what needs to happen to clarify that these regimes will be toppled, right? We cannot leave them in place. And that's what we're in the process of doing. This is not good. That's why a certain amount
1: of control on the ground in Gaza is vital, because unless Hamas and uh, the people who support them lose territory and lose ground, they're not going to see this as a defeat for themselves. Or you're correct about that. they will view it as, well, you know, we prevailed and so on. You know, a bunch of houses were destroyed. You know, the people in Hamas still have places to live. So I don't think they're the ones that care, but we need to bring up another topic, which I, I wanted to mention for a long time, but there's a lot of talk always about the rules of war and international law. So a lot of these so-called rules and laws were established uh, after uh, World War II. We're talking about uh, the Geneva Conference, et cetera, after uh, what happened during the uh, early part of the 20th century, in the middle 20th century, where you had two world wars and probably between military and civilian casualties there were probably hundred million people killed. And uh, the great minds of Europe and the West decided we need uh, laws of warfare, especially after the atom bomb destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So they made all these laws about having to protect civilians during wartime. So what did the bad guys do? The bad guys looked at this and they said, you know something, if there's now such a premium on avoiding civilian casualties, so we need to embed our forces inside civilian areas so that uh, we can hide and the rules of war will protect us. And we saw examples of that in Vietnam where the Viet Cong embedded themselves in the South Vietnam and American troops couldn't tell the difference between the South Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. And let's fast forward. And this is exactly what we've seen in Gaza, in Lebanon with Hamas and with the Hezbollah. And it, it makes fighting this kind of a war very, very difficult. So the odds are stacked against us uh, to begin with. The game is rigged partially because I would say of the well-meaning diplomats and international uh, community officials of the world who thought they were doing a good thing, and in a sense they were, to uh, prevent civilian casualties. But on the second hand, it it keeps our hands tied. So when we talk about uh, who's winning or can we win, we have to understand that given the way the laws are framed, it's almost impossible for a country like Israel to win uh, when you're fighting embedded
0: forces inside civilian areas under the current terms of the rules of war. I mean, it's, it's interesting you mentioned historically where the origins of a lot of these rules of war, I mean, historically the definition of, of genocide, the idea of, of that as a legal term, a legal concept was the right. Polish Jewish lawyer decades ago who gave that meaning and he worked to define that. And that's an issue in Jewish history, which is more than that, because we see that once again, these terms, which were made to protect the irony of what's ongoing at the Hague. I mean, it's not being that much reported, but again, we spoke about at the beginning of the week, Israel is being held to account for genocide in the way that's terrible, the, the actual weaponization of Israel's uh, Jewish people's own experience. We were the victims of the genocide. What we're seeing now, the calls for Israel to be held to account for genocide is the ultimate weaponization of the Jewish people's own past, which is a terrible, terrible thing. You don't think you can get worse than that. The idea that we should have to, in the most just fight of all, we should have to put down arms and be threatened with the international courts because we're trying to protect ourselves from you know, and it's been a lot of doom and gloom over this particular podcast episode. And I don't want to end on that note. But what I do want to do is to perhaps a, a bit of context from the parasha for what we've said over here, which is parasha B'ayi talks about Al-man b'incho ven b'incho, in order to you tell over into the ears of your children, grandchildren, what, what Mitzrayim, done. You, 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 know, you need to know that I'm Hashem and the, the bells are ever bells, which is about you know but I think very relevant to this as well, which as you said, in in order to tell over the truth of whatever truth you have to give to your descendants, you yourself need to know that I'm Hashem. In other words, it doesn't go just to say, follow me, let's lead by, you've got to lead by example. Your children are only going to pick up that which you fervently believe in. That which you fervently believe in will communicate itself to your children. And I think so much is in a wider context as well. Same thing is true. In order for to communicate anything to the world, and taking this in a wider sense about the experience of Am Yisrael here in Eretz Israel, we have to be convinced of it that this is the right way ourselves. That We can only communicate things to the world about our suffering, about the fact that we need to come up with a different way of living here in this country. We can communicate it to the world. We have to have it clear ourselves first. We have to be convinced this is the right way first. And I think the unity that has come has not just been a unity over the last few months of generally agreeing not to fight. There is now an agreement that we have reached rock bottom over here. We have to change. And if we can start taking what millions of people are convinced about, Binyamin, if we can start communicating that to the world, we can and we should and will, Mr. we we'll be able to communicate it better. I wish you and uh, listeners everywhere a good Shabbos.